My name is Michael and I'm going to bring our Bible reading, which this morning is from Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. They, that is Jesus and his disciples, went across the lake to the region of the the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. Then the demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. I did my uh, high schooling in New Zealand. And in year nine English, we studied a book called The Hobbit. So this is in the um, early 80s. And I remember reading The Hobbit and there's a magic ring and there's demons and sorcerers and spells And it was the first time I'd kind of read any fantasy literature. And I thought to myself, this is the most stupid book I've ever read. Uh, And I was at a state school. Uh, I was the only Christian in my class. I believed in spirits and demons and a God who somehow sat behind the universe. The rest of my fellow students didn't believe in any of this. They, like pretty much everyone of the day, just believed that um, there was no God, there was no deity who somehow had a hand in the events of the universe. There was just science and facts and uh, real material physical things and that was it. And I thought to myself, if I think this book is silly, they must think this book is even more silly 
this type of literature is never going to survive. It's going to go out of fashion. Remember, I'm in New Zealand, right, where you can now go on Hobbit holidays and visit all the paraphernalia to do with the movies. Then, 15-odd years later, we get another series of books, Harry Potter. And suddenly, kids everywhere are talking about sorcerers and spells and witches and the like. And it's not just in our literature, but in our culture, we've had something of a renewed consciousness of the spiritual dimension to life. And so, if you're into yoga, for instance, it's not just physical activity, but there's something about realigning your soul with your body. Uh, people will buy crystals and think that there are some sort of healing properties to these fundamental minerals. Um, people will go for holidays on spiritual pilgrimages and they might go trekking in Nepal or they might go on El Camino, uh, that's a walk in Spain. And people in their thousands do their spiritual pilgrimages. I used to play tennis with a guy uh, in Mornington and he went two, three times on this El Camino walk and I I sort of said to him, what is it about this walk? He was an agnostic. He just sort of said, there's something profoundly spiritual about it. And I said, well, what is it? Try and explain it to me. And he said, oh, I don't know. It's different for every person. And he knew there was a part to him that was spiritual, but he had no capacity to make sense or um, have any details or frames. There was just some vague awareness in Tassie, there's now a, an annual festival called Dark Mofo. And it is, it's a very spiritual, but it's a very dark festival. But people come in their thousands and they know they're participating in something. Or mindfulness is yet another example of where in our psychology, we're conscious that there is something spiritual to life. And so, What's happening with this spiritual awakening that's taking place in Western culture? Well, you can now go to the bookshop and you can buy all sorts of self-help books and they will help you to kind of emphasise that spiritual dimension to ourselves. So life isn't just about the intellect or the physical or the social, but we're now conscious that there's a spiritual side to who we are and to achieve wellness... We need to feed that part of our being. And so you can buy a book or any number of books at any bookshop and they will help you get in touch with the spiritual side of life. Uh, and for instance, down the bottom there, The Seven Spiritual Laws by Deepak Chopra will suggest that there's something that's present in all of the world's religions or intuitively we're conscious that there is this spiritual side to life and there are some underlying principles there in the universe. And if you can appreciate those principles and if you can order your life in ways that are consistent with those principles, then that will bring about some wellness. So we have this 21st century re-emergence of spirituality. But I want to suggest to you that on the whole, we are quite immature. As a culture, we are quite young and somewhat, we've got a lot to learn still. And so I want to go back to a first century story 
about spirituality. Uh, but I need to just explain to you a little bit the context, because where this story takes place matters. So here is the Sea of Galilee. It's in the north of Israel. Imagine it's about seven times larger than Lake Illawarra, right? Or maybe five times larger than Sydney Harbour. Uh, and you can see across the other side. And Jesus spends most of his time in Capernaum. That's where Peter's house is. And Jesus preaches at that temple. Uh, and he's just made the journey across the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and Jamie preached on this passage a couple of weeks ago. There was the storm at night and the disciples woke up Jesus who was sleeping. And they've made it to the other side to the region of Gerasenes or Gerasenes. And that word may mean something like after a pilgrimage. And in that region, there's a major city. It's a Decapolis, right? Coming from two Greek words, Deca, ten, polis, city. There are ten cities in the region. And they are Greco-Roman cities. And they are kind of like Las Vegas. They've got flashing lights and they've got um, all sorts of pleasures of the flesh that you can indulge in those sort of cities and it's about experiencing life and life to the full. And what Greco-Roman culture is saying is, this is where you are going to live it up. Come to one of our cities. And Jesus has left the backwaters of the north of Israel. Think kind of like, I don't know, Darwin or rural Tasmania, that sort of, right? He's left that kind of space and he's come to the big lights and there's a man there uh, who is spirit filled who is spirit possessed and we read that this morning uh, we read about uh, a man who went across to uh, sorry Jesus got in a boat goes across to the other side and when Jesus gets out of the boat we meet this man who is full of spirits and what's this man's life like? Well, he lives in tombs. He's often in chains and he self-harms. He cuts himself with stones night and day and he cries out. And in the parallel story in Luke's Gospel, we discover some other features. This man is naked. There's something vulnerable there's something, um, he's not decent. Uh, for a long time, this man had not worn clothes. And we also discover that he's alone. He had been driven by the demon into solitary places. There's nothing desirable about this man's life. It's dismal, it's wretched. It's a terrible existence. That's what it means for this man to be filled with spirits. And then we discover that it's not just one spirit, but it's many. What's going on here? Why, why do the spirits identify themselves as legion? And I want to suggest to you that what this man lacks is a centre. He lacks a core. 
He lacks a purpose, but he has all these spirits who are pulling him in a thousand different ways, and yet he's going nowhere and he has nothing. Well, that's helpful for us to notice that a man who is possessed by spirits, those spirits make his life completely awful, completely dark. Because we live in a world that's fascinated by grey. In our new enlightened spirituality, we've decided that there's kind of good and bad in everything. And so as we read our books or watch our movies, the characters who appear bad often turn out to have some good about them that we weren't quite expecting. Or the characters who initially appear good maybe turn out to be a little bit more sinister. And in our modern remake of our superheroes, the heroes who used to be as pure as the driven snow now have a darker side that somehow kind of drives them. And a conversation with someone after church here uh, in the last month. And their view was that there's good and bad in everything and in all religions, including, in their opinion, Jesus and Satan. There was something good and bad about everyone. And I want to suggest to you that the truth we're picking up from our first century spirituality is that Satan is totally evil. He might masquerade as all sorts of other things, but he comes to destroy. Here's a Bible verse that we used to learn. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. We normally learn the second half of this Bible verse, don't we? Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. But notice the contrast. That Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy. And exposed at the nth degree, the influence of Satan in this man's life is he makes his life miserable. Now, Satan might promise all sorts of other things. He might promise success or wealth or influence. But at the end, his purposes are to steal and kill and to destroy. So, let's read on. Jesus says to this man, what is your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. And then we get a fascinating response. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. So, somehow, this spirit-possessed man is in the region of the tombs and the demons appear to have some freedom, some, maybe it's not complete freedom, but some capacity to have some level of influence over this man and his life in this particular area. And the demons are conscious that Jesus can cast them out of the area and somehow that will be the end of them. And so they're begging Jesus, please don't do this, let us stay in the area. What about if we go into the pigs? Now, what's going on here? Because this is odd to us. And 
what we're getting is a sense that somehow these demons, or Satan who stands behind these demons, employs or is allowed to employ tactics that are specific to a time and to a space. Somehow these demons have some degree of freedom to do what they will in this particular location. Now, what can they do? And how much? And how far does their reach uh, extend? And uh, the text is kind of vague on this. Now, I don't know about you, sometimes I find myself uh, turning on my television at four or five o'clock in the morning and these uh, often American preachers and... Um, did I just drop out? So they're sometimes saying things like, your church is keeping some biblical truths from you. And they start to talk about how the demonic forces work and how you can resist and how you can overcome the demons. And I want to say to you, uh, and they're often drawing on passages like this one and other ones. And I want to say to you, that, that's not what's going on in this text. The point of the text is not to teach you how the demons work. That's just kind of like a side feature. What the passage is emphasizing is that Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is in control. The demons immediately come to Jesus. They recognize who he is and they're begging him, please don't cast us away from here. In fact, Jesus does dispel them into the sea. And the sea, as we have seen, is a place of death or darkness or Sheol or holding over until the day of final judgment. So how does Jesus bring freedom that contrasts with the devastation that these spirits bring? Well, we'll come to that in a minute. But let's just ask ourselves, what might be the tactics of Satan at our particular moment, our particular space and time? Well, we can ask a more general question, and that's this. What is Satan doing in the remaining time that he has here on earth? And I think the clearest, most consistent message we get from the New Testament is that Satan comes to tempt us and to test us and he does that through trials. Uh, about four weeks ago, Jason was preaching and he took us to Revelation 12. And we read this in Revelation 12. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's cast out of heaven because he's defeated by the angels. And Satan is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And then a couple of verses on. The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. So the woman gives birth to the child, which is Jesus, who's a human being. We are the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. So Satan is waging war against obedient Christians who are holding fast 
to the testimony of Jesus. That's what Satan's doing. He's angry, he's frustrated because he's lost, and he's going to spoil and ruin as much as he possibly can, and he's at war. That's the image, right? It's not just like he's fiddling around the edges. or he, No, he's at war against those who still follow God's commands. Here's another passage. Uh, it's 1 Thessalonians. Um, and Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church. It's one of his letters. He said, I wanted to come and visit you again and again, but Satan blocked our way. We sent Timothy. So Paul couldn't go. Instead, he sends Timothy, who was our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. Somehow Satan has some capacity to block the ministry efforts of Paul and his entourage, and that potentially frustrates, unsettles. It's a trial. And that trial is experienced both by Paul and his fellow workers and by the Thessalonian church. Now you might say, this is terrible. How does Satan get to do this? But then we read on, for you know quite well, back one slide, that we are destined for trials. It's part of God's plans. God's sovereignty allows that Satan contest and can trial us. And that's part of what we're experiencing in these remaining times. So, Satan comes to test us, to put trials in our way. Uh, he prays uh, to be able to sift Peter and the disciples, and I suspect and presume he's continuing to pray about you and me, that he might uh, sift us. And we, um, I suspect, experience a different sort of a, a temptation to what this man Legion experienced. I don't think demon possession and the occult and the like is the way that Satan mostly works in our time. Now, I'm now speaking from my opinions, not directly from Scripture. Um, so choose to disagree with me if you like. I think God can and does do that, and it happens a bit in our culture, and it happens more in other cultures. But I want to suggest to you that I think Satan's predominant tactic for undermining our faithfulness at this moment is to distract us with legions of options. What is it that most prevents you from focusing on God, from meditating on Scripture, from thinking about how it is that you're a spiritual being called to have a certain purpose in a ministry? And I, personally, I want to say... I think it's the myriad of distractions that we have in our world. Just think for yourself, when you are struggling to go to sleep at night or when you wake up early in the morning or when you're trying to kind of have some time to focus and what is it that distracts you? We live in a world, don't we, that is just full of white noise. 
there is always some website to go to, some new Netflix episode to watch, some new level to get to in that game that you're addicted to at the moment. There's some bit of news or information that you just have to catch up on in case you've missed out and you're not in the know. There's somebody's feed to follow. There's something to achieve, some experience. And I was just driving to church this morning and there was a guy out walking his dog. And, and isn't that a beautiful thing to do first thing in the morning? You know, a bit of fresh air, a bit of perspective, clear the mind. What's he doing? He's got his phone. Right? And he's just kind of strolling through his feet. And, and that's our world, isn't it? There's always something in our ears and something in front of our eyes. And many of these, I suggest, are distractions that pull us in a thousand directions. And we end up looking at everything and at the same time being centered around nothing, lacking a single mind. Well, that's Satan's tactic. And you know what else we do? Is that when we actually do experience these trials, I think we misframe them. And I pick this up as people come to me and they sort of say, you know, oh, this happened this week, somebody got sick or somebody got hurt or I had this challenge at work or uh, something to do with a relationship that kind of broke down. And, and I sort of say, wow, that's tough. How are you feeling about that? I'm angry. I'm frustrated at God. I've prayed about it and he hasn't taken it away and I'm kind of annoyed and God and I are having words at the moment. And, and, and there's this assumption that somehow any form of suffering is unjust. It's unfair. It's God's job to take it away. And, and why is it that I'm experiencing this? My life is supposed to be filled with blessings and now I have to put up with this and I've prayed and I've asked and God hasn't answered. Now contrast that with James, where he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience or whenever you face trials of many kinds. Life is full of trials. And that's what Satan is about. And to some extent, Paul is saying that we are destined to face trials. And the response is not getting annoyed at God because he lets them happen. But James says, consider it pure joy. Why? Because God can use trials to test your faith that produces perseverance. And perseverance finishes its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. You know what I've noticed? Most people are pretty good at getting old, right? We all manage to age. No great skill in that. Maturity is another thing. There's some people who manage to get old without getting any more mature. mature doesn't, maturity doesn't come automatically. It takes what? Trials and perseverance, and they are the schoolroom that leads to maturity. And so, James says, consider it joy when God 
is schooling you and providing an opportunity for you to become more mature. God uses trials to grow maturity and I've got another word up there, resilience. Resilience. Again, I'm, I'm feeling and so, sounding older, must because I'm a grandparent these days. And um, you look at the, the, the generation coming through in their 20s at the moment and you think, my goodness, those kids lack resilience. They've been raised in cotton wool. They have helicopter parents. We have phrases for this, right? Where they've been so protected from trials such that actually they lack a maturity and a resilience. And they're so quick to feel depressed or overwhelmed or um, and anxiety and mental illness rates are on the rise. And again, I want to say, I think there's something in our culture that lacks a consciousness of the value of trials and how God can use those to grow us. Well, let's come back to our spiritual man. Does he grow through his trials and on the other side of his encounter with Jesus? And we read this. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legions of demons. And what is he doing? He's sitting. He's dressed and he's in his right mind. And he says to Jesus, I want to become one of your disciples. And Jesus says to him, actually, I want you to go home to your people and to bless them and to share with them what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he goes back to the Decapolis, to the city in lights. The transformation in this guy's life is heartening, isn't it? Not only has he avoided the death and destruction that Satan wants to bring into his life, actually now he has life and has it to the full. And so he's sitting, he's dressed, and there's something honourable about that. He's in his right mind rather than in a thousand minds. He's been given a purpose and his purpose is to serve and to bless others and to share with them the mercy that God has bestowed upon him. And in returning to bless his people, he actually is blessed himself. Isn't that transformation beautiful? It's, it's black and white. It's life and death. It's binary. And that is the difference between what Satan and his lies and his masquerade has to offer, as pretentious as it looks, where it ultimately takes you, versus the influence that Jesus has in this man's life. Following Jesus brings health and focus. Well... That's the story of one man's life, but there's actually some bigger themes that are kind of going on here. So let me take you back to our map. And the north of Israel is kind of the backwaters. These are the simple people, right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? These are the uneducated farmers and fishermen. And Jesus speaks to those people 
on Mount Arbel, where he delivers the Sermon on the Mount. And you can stand on that mountain and you can look across the sea and um, view the other side where the Decapolis would have been. And that city would have been lit up at night. There would have been fires and there would have been activity and it would have been a vibrant 24-7 kind of a place. And there would have been an appeal. That's where I'm going to live it up. That's where I'm going to experience and enjoy and find sensation and um, titillation. Right? Uh, and what we're discovering here is two rival views of life. And on the one side of the lake is this. There's bright, bustling lights. There's activity, there's people, there's busyness. And yet, the man is alone. On one side, there is the promise of freedom and choices. And yet, those choices somehow enslave. When you watch one episode, you've got to watch the next. When you watch one series, you've got to watch the next. When you click once, you've got to come back and click again and again. Whatever you're chasing, you never quite have enough of it. And you're somehow enslaved to it. On the one side, there are a thousand options, but there's no clarity. That's what the world has to offer. That's the lies, that's the mirage of Satan. By contrast, we have another view of life. One that appears somewhat feeble and somewhat weak. Jesus rocks up in a fishing boat. Not with an army, not with a royal entourage... Not with a display of power. His disciples were people who were not chosen when they were 12, when they should have graduated from Bar Mitzvah as like the best in their class. And no, no, these were like tradies who had a career change. They're a second rate bunch of disciples. Jesus turns up with them, and even then they got a bit afraid and couldn't make it quite across the lake. And what happens? Jesus heals and he overcomes the demonic. And there's a view of life that says, don't chase the thousand options, but actually follow the one person and serve others. And that brings clarity and meaning. Isn't that an insightful contrast? That's what's happening. And so here's my question for you. As you're coming out of the other side of coronavirus, COVID restrictions, and you're going to put your life back together, God has afforded us with a moment where we have some greater clarity. We have been forced to slow down and to see what all the chasing and all the white noise brings. And before life gets busy and you stick it all back together again, I want to ask you, what is the simple centre that brings life? Now, you might be saying, oh, so what you're asking me to do is to put my life back together and do more stuff at church. 
I actually uh, started a PhD in listening to preaching. And here's one of the depressing things I learned, right? That is, you people hear things that I'm not trying to say. It happens all the time in preaching. Uh, and I suspect it's possible that you've heard me say something like this this morning. Oh, yes, life has lots of dimensions. What you're asking me to do is to choose to make the spiritual a bit more prominent, right? Choose some of the other things a little bit less and... Okay, all right, if I have to, I will. And, and I'm trusting that somehow that might be slightly... That, that's not the message of this story or of this sermon. What this passage and what I'm actually trying to say is, it's not about you choosing, but actually Jesus, who is Lord over the waves, is Lord over all of life. And if you... Put him first and entrust him, he brings life. And any other way of framing life is a mirage, it's a bunch of lies that Satan is peddling and it leads to death and to destruction. So let me give you just a few framing questions as you think about how to put your life back together. Here's the first one. Do your priorities align with the priorities of Jesus. The things that you're investing in, that you're spending time in, that you think are important, that you lay awake dreaming about, do they align with the priorities of Jesus? Secondly, as you put your life back together again, what might you do more of and what might you do less of? Is there some white noise in your life? Are there thousands of distractions that are leading you nowhere? They fill your time, but they don't fill your soul. And how will you choose to do less of those? And lastly, is your assumption that you're in control or that Jesus is? Is this about you making choices and deciding and being enlightened? Or is this about you following Jesus and trusting that what he knows, that what he says is best? Well, a spiritual man who encounters Jesus and finds life. And as we are conscious that life is more than just about holidays and work and progress on the other side of COVID, as we put life back together in 2021 and beyond, and whether or not we're completely over restrictions, it is time to start to put life back together, isn't it? As you do that, are you trusting and following Jesus? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come to you as a generation and as a culture that so often thinks we are enlightened, that we now know better, that we have a spiritual consciousness that's greater than what people had a generation or two ago. And Lord, we just need to repent of our arrogance and our sense of having arrived. And we want to go back and we want to see that 
20 centuries ago, you were saying things about spirituality that are far greater than what we think we've learnt in the past few years. Jesus, we thank you that in you is life. We thank you for the blessing that your presence was in the life of this possessed man. And we come to you as people who perhaps also are oppressed by thousands of options and choices. And we want to find the life in the single-minded focus that comes from following you and loving you and living like you lived. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.